0: Download the new Bumble now. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? episode 58, Stalemate. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I should remind you that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free on patreon.com. We left off last time in late 1800. Napoleon was consolidating his power over France, while his secret police fought a shadow war with violent dissidents from the far left and the far right. Even as his regime resorted to authoritarian measures, Bonaparte had never been more popular. The French public cared about peace and stability above all else. And besides, the regime was comparatively liberal and tolerant to average people. It was only the radicals whose rights were being violated. Perhaps that's nothing more than an excuse to bury one's head in the sand and ignore government abuses of civil liberties. But it was enough for most people. It's hard to imagine the citizens of modern democracies tolerating the suspension of habeas corpus, special military tribunals, and guilt by association. But after over a decade of political instability and violent civil conflict, who knows what people might be willing to tolerate to make it stop? Bonaparte was acutely aware of how closely his popularity was tied to the restoration of peace and order. Order was slowly returning through a combination of heavy handed policing and genuine political reconciliation. We discussed the security measures in Paris last episode, but Bonaparte also ordered similarly draconian measures in the countryside. The defeat of that Anglo Russian expedition to Holland the previous year had effectively closed an entire theater of the war, suddenly freeing up a huge number of seasoned Republican troops. Rather than sending these units to bolster French forces in Italy or Germany, Napoleon redeployed many of them to France's interior, where they participated in sweeps against bandits and royalist partisans. According to official reports, these operations killed several hundred suspects while resisting arrest, whatever that means. Hundreds more were sentenced to death in military tribunals, which followed in their wake. The historian Philip Dwyer described these operations in Brittany In the first six months of their existence, the military commissions tried more than 1,200 people, a third of whom were condemned to death. And that's just one province. Similar operations were underway all over western and southern France. According to Dwyer, there were roughly 2,300 executions in France between 1800 and 1802. That's a staggering number by modern standards, particularly for a country of only 30 million inhabitants. But that represents a significant decline from the bloody days of the Terror and open civil war, when greater numbers of prisoners were sometimes executed in a single day. And so, while people who happened to be in the path of the crackdown probably experienced the consulate regime as brutal, repressive, and tyrannical the average person probably experienced a dramatic decline in violence. There was no mass media to publicize the heavy-handed tactics of the troops, or the swift, often crude justice handed down by the tribunals. And if there was, people might not have cared. Bandits and guerrillas were a scourge to anyone who traveled the roads. And these draconian measures really did work. Previous revolutionary governments had discovered that brigands were no match for regular Republican troops, but had never been able to bring enough forces to bear to make a dent in the problem. Bonaparte made the issue a priority, and had the resources to solve it. By our standards, the country roads and highways of France remained violent war zones, but there was a marked improvement over the lawless years of the late 1790s. Bringing order to the countryside and the roads helped boost Napoleon's reputation as a peacemaker and source of stability. But this was a secondary concern compared to the war on France's borders. No one would care that Napoleon had brought the bandits and guerrillas to heel if he failed to do the same to the Austrians and the British. Bonaparte had good reason to believe the twin victories at Marengo and Hochstadt would be enough to bring the Habsburgs to their knees. As you may recall, both battles led to ceasefires in their respective theaters of war. Napoleon told his generals that they had conquered peace. But these ceasefires were temporary measures, negotiated on an ad hoc basis by the commanders at the front, not agreements between the two governments. These types of arrangements were usually precursors to more comprehensive treaties between the two combatants, as we saw with the end of the War of the First Coalition but that was not a guaranteed outcome. One obstacle on the road to peace was a specific clause in Austria's alliance with Great Britain. When they rejoined the coalition, the Habsburgs pledged to stay in the war for the duration, not to seek a separate peace with France under any circumstances. In return, Britain would provide them with a massive subsidy to fund the war effort. This was an important concession from the British, because the Austrian coffers were still depleted from their last war with France. On paper, the Habsburg Emperor was the most powerful sovereign in Europe, but his realm was very decentralized. Many of his vassals were practically independent. This made it hard to raise funds, particularly for emergency expenditures in wartime. Meanwhile, the British had money to spend. Their vast commercial empire was the most lucrative in history. At the dawn of the 19th century, global trade as we know it was just beginning to take off, and Britain took the lion's share of the profits. Fattened by the fruits of commerce and colonialism, the British banking sector was growing by leaps and bounds, far outpacing any of her rivals. Britain was the only country on earth with a modern-style central bank, which gave the government financial power and flexibility that the other great powers could only dream of matching. Austria was bearing the weight of the fighting, but British money was the engine that drove the coalition. By mid-1800, the Habsburgs were in a bind. They desperately needed those subsidies from London, and could not afford to go back on their agreement and snub Britain, the most reliable counterweight to France. But the war was looking increasingly untenable. Almost all of Italy was lost and General Moreau's army was in Bavaria, only 69 miles, or 111 kilometers, from Vienna. After the stunning Republican victories of the summer, the Habsburg armies were in disarray, scrambling to prepare a defense of the Austrian heartland. Britain needed the Austrians to prosecute the war on the continent, but they could see that a continuation of the conflict would almost certainly lead their allies to disaster. Left with no good options... London released the Austrians from their promise not to seek a separate peace. On July 15th, the day after Bastille Day, French and Austrian diplomats signed an official ceasefire between the two governments, which expressed a shared desire for further negotiations towards a permanent peace treaty. Despite the loss of her most important ally, Britain resolved to continue the fight. It was back to the status quo before the formation of the Second Coalition, Peace on the continent, but the continuation of a low-intensity, indirect war between Britain and France, carried out on the high seas and in far-flung colonies and minor outlying islands. Earlier in the year, Prime Minister William Pitt vehemently rejected the idea of peace with France. Quote, The France which now exists affords no promise of security against aggression and injustice in peace and is destitute of all justice and integrity in war. Who bears testimony to her good faith, the states she has plundered under the misleading but captivating mask of deliverance from tyranny? What is the character of her advisers? What is the aspect of her counsels? They are the authors of all that misery, the fountainhead of all those calamities which, Marching by the side of an unblushing tyranny, have saddened and obscured the fairest and happiest portions of Europe, and which have deformed the face of nature wherever their diseased genius has acquired ascendancy. We are at war with armed opinions. We are at war with those opinions which the sword of audacious, unprincipled, and impious innovation seeks to propagate amidst the ruin of empires the demolition of the altars of all religion, and the destruction of every venerable, good, and liberal institution. We will not leave the monster to prowl the world unopposed. He must cease to annoy the abode of peaceful men. If he retire to the cell, thither we will not pursue him, but we cannot leave him on the throne of power. As long as Republican France continues as it is, then I make war against Republican France. I must regard as an enemy and treat as such a government which is founded upon those principles of universal anarchy and frightful injustice. Quote. As you can see, Pitt was casting the conflict as an ideological war against a government that was, by its very nature, incapable of peaceful coexistence with the rest of Europe. Thus, he claimed, there could be no peace without regime change in France. Around the same time as this speech, the British foreign minister, Lord Grenville, wrote a letter to the French government, in which he laid out British policy in no uncertain terms. There would be no peace between the two powers until a member of the Bourbon dynasty was crowned king in Paris. This letter was addressed to Foreign Minister Talleyrand rather than Napoleon himself, a deliberate snub. However... Despite Prime Minister Pitt's defiant words and the government's hard line, support for the war within Britain was slowly eroding. Even King George III had misgivings, calling Lord Grenville's letter, quote, in my opinion, much too strong. End quote. The king generally kept foreign policy at arm's length and avoided direct intervention with the government, so that mild rebuke carried a lot of weight. It is easy to see why so many people in Britain were growing tired of the war, and were prepared to take a softer line against France. After eight years of struggle, millions of pounds spent or lost, and thousands killed, Britain had precious little to show for her efforts. There had been successes. The Republicans were nearly pushed out of Egypt. The island of Malta had fallen to the British after a long and bitter siege, aided by a local Maltese uprising. The Republican navy was practically neutralized. The French colonial empire was almost totally occupied. But none of these victories had succeeded in making any significant dent in France's ascendancy over Western Europe. Every ally Britain had found on the continent had been defeated, some more than once. Bonaparte's regime was looking more secure than ever. Britain had declared war on France with two main goals reversing the revolution and containing French power. After eight years, they were no closer to realizing those aims. In fact, they had only gotten further out of reach. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The rest of the world was losing patience with Britain's war effort as well. British mastery over the high seas was one of their biggest advantages over France, and they pressed this advantage as far as they could. Not only did the Royal Navy destroy Republican warships and seize French merchant vessels— they claimed the right to stop neutral shipping and confiscate any cargo they believed bound for France. This policy hurt France economically, but most of Europe was now at peace with the Republic and eager to do business with the biggest market on the continent. Merchants from neutral countries were outraged and demanded their governments do something. Those governments were not very pleased either. Not only was this policy costing them money, it was an affront to the national sovereignty and dignity. No single neutral nation could afford to challenge the British in the fields of commerce or naval power, but if they joined together, their combined power might be enough to force a change in policy. Throughout 1800, there was one man working tirelessly to organize opposition to the British maritime blockade, Emperor Paul of Russia. It was not so long ago that the emperor was vehemently anti-French and one of the prime movers behind the Second Coalition. Only a few months after abruptly pulling out of the coalition, he was now ready to challenge his former ally over Russia's right to trade with France. As I've said before, Paul was an erratic ruler, prone to sudden shifts in policy, but even by his standards, this was a dramatic turn. The Russian emperor proposed the formation of a new League of Armed Neutrality, a commercial and naval alliance aimed at protecting neutral merchant shipping from Royal Navy harassment and pressuring London to change their blockade policy. I say a new League of Armed Neutrality because a similar alliance by the same name had existed 20 years earlier, formed in protest against similar British policies during the American War of Independence. This first League had a big impact on the course of the war, It was a major contributor to Britain's diplomatic isolation, which ultimately culminated in France, Spain, and the Netherlands joining the war against Britain, which arguably led to the American victory. By the end of 1800, Emperor Paul had convinced Sweden and Denmark, which ruled over Norway, to join. All of northern Europe was united against the blockade. Prussia expressed interest as well, and the United States signed a commercial treaty with France, which included a formal denunciation of the blockade. Even worse for the British, the Americans had just elected a new president, the pro-French and anti-British Thomas Jefferson. In retaliation against the Royal Navy blockade, the Danes closed the straits leading to the Baltic Sea to British shipping, denying British merchants access to lucrative northern European markets and cutting Britain off from strategic sources of naval supplies, like lumber and pitch. By the beginning of 1801, alarm bells were going off in London. The Royal Navy was powerful, but not so dominant that it could afford to pick a fight with all of Northern Europe, plus America. If Britain lost its grip on the high seas, it could lose the maritime trade that was the lifeblood of its economy and chief source of its power. Worse, it could expose Britain to invasion. That fear might sound a bit hysterical to modern ears, but during the Napoleonic Wars, it was very real and not entirely unfounded. It was not a foregone conclusion that Britain would remain safe from any serious foreign invasion for centuries. Indeed, in 1797, just over a thousand French soldiers successfully landed in Wales during Lazar-Osh's abortive invasion of Ireland but this force was only ever intended to be a diversion, and they were defeated and captured quite easily. The following year, over a thousand Republican soldiers landed in Western Ireland under General Jean Umbert. They were able to link up with Irish rebels and actually had some success against the local garrison before British regulars could be deployed to contain and defeat them. Neither one of these invasions was very large or presented any serious threat but the very fact of their presence on British territory reminded Britons that without the protective curtain of the Royal Navy, this cold war with France could turn unpleasantly hot. Paranoia over a potential French invasion became a near-constant feature of British life. The government and private citizens organized reserve militia units to augment the relatively small standing army. Parades and drills by these amateur soldiers were a common sight in city parks and on village greens. The poet Robert Burns served as a private in the Royal Dumfries Volunteers. The novelist Sir Walter Scott was quartermaster of the Royal Edinburgh Volunteer Light Dragoons. Edward Austin Knight, older brother of Jane Austen, was a captain in the East Kent Volunteers. Even William Pitt himself served as a colonel in his local Volunteer Artillery Regiment. These were not military men, and many of them had ambivalent feelings about the French Revolution and the Tory government's war effort. But there was a sense of national crisis, and so they signed up to do their part. The British could not afford to sit idle while the League of Armed Neutrality developed into a potential threat. They would act forcefully to nip this alliance in the bud, by any means necessary. The first move in this drama occurred hundreds of miles away, in St. Petersburg, Russia. On the evening of March 23rd, 1801, a group of Russian army officers burst into Emperor Paul's apartments at St. Michael's Castle. They found their sovereign cowering in the corner and unceremoniously hauled him to his desk, demanding he sign a letter announcing his abdication from the throne in favor of his son. When the emperor resisted, they knocked him to the floor and proceeded to kick and stomp on him until he stopped moving. A brutal and ignoble end to one of the most powerful men in Europe. Emperor Paul I was 46 years old when he died, and had ruled Russia for just over four years. He inherited some of the instincts and inclinations of his famous mother, Catherine the Great, but hardly any of her administrative talent or political intelligence. The Emperor's assassination had many of the hallmarks of a spontaneous act. The perpetrators were drunk and angry at their recent dismissal from the army. But appearances can be deceiving. In fact, this was the culmination of a months-long conspiracy, which included several high-ranking generals, aristocrats, and government officials. It is widely suspected, but has never been proven, that the British ambassador and his staff were involved as well. But I don't want to suggest that the assassination was entirely the product of British intelligence. Paul's chaotic, autocratic style of governance made a lot of enemies within the ruling class. The Russian court was an enlightened, modern place. Particularly under Catherine the Great, some of the best minds in Europe were assembled at St. Petersburg. But old habits die hard. For all its glamour and refinement, the imperial court was a very dangerous place riven with intrigues between competing factions, which sometimes escalated into violence. Russia had a long tradition of assassinations and palace coups. Paul's mother and predecessor, Catherine the Great, came to power violently, as had Empress Elizabeth, who ruled in the mid-18th century. The Russians didn't need any lessons in conspiracy from the British. That said, the timing of Paul's assassinations suggests it may have been British support which pushed the conspiracy from the planning stages to execution. The morning after Paul's death, his Scottish-born personal physician officially declared him deceased, listing a stroke as the cause of death. The crown passed to his 23-year-old son, who became Emperor Alexander I. Alexander did not punish any of his father's killers and so it is widely assumed he had at least some knowledge of the plot. Apparently, in his later years, Alexander was tortured with guilt over his father's death. You can hardly blame him, it was a horrible way to go, and Alexander was complicit to some degree. He may not have known the details of the plot, and probably didn't predict it would end the way it did, but he was probably at least aware there was something afoot, and he was certainly the prime beneficiary of this deed. He also ratified their actions after the fact, by refusing to punish anyone for the crime. The new emperor was a man of the Enlightenment. He grew up in the intellectual atmosphere cultivated by his grandmother, Catherine the Great, a famous patron of the new philosophy of the age. Alexander's personal tutor was the great Swiss scholar Frédéric César de La Harpe, who would later become one of the founding fathers of the Helvetic Republic, France's revolutionary Swiss sister republic. However, Alexander was also strongly pro-British. He had lived in England during his youth and spoke the language fluently. He identified less with real radicals like his tutor, La Harpe and more with the liberal-minded but anti-revolutionary aristocrats he encountered during his time in England. The degree of British involvement in Paul's assassination is debatable, but without question they were massive beneficiaries of Paul's death. The League of Armed Neutrality lost its most powerful and energetic proponent, and he was replaced by a pro British Anglophone. All the momentum behind Emperor Paul's grand alliance was suddenly gone, but that didn't mean the alliance ceased to exist overnight. It would take more than intrigues to dissolve the League. Even without the force of Emperor Paul behind the pact, countries don't just abandon their agreements whenever the diplomatic winds shift the League of Armed Neutrality would not dissolve without a real, tangible exercise of military power. And before Emperor Paul's body was buried, the British were already preparing to deliver this blow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding, or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, dot or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. In the spring of 1801, London sent Denmark an ultimatum, and all restrictions on British shipping or face the wrath of the Royal Navy. By the time the Danes responded a large fleet was already on its way to Copenhagen. The campaign that followed is often remembered as just one chapter in the biography of its most famous participant, Horatio Nelson, but he was only the second in command. Overall leadership of the expedition fell to Sir Hyde Parker, a much older and much more conservative officer. This was a sensitive mission, with political and diplomatic elements as well as the military dimension. London wanted someone in charge who would be sensitive to these complexities, and rein in the hard-charging Nelson. As you might imagine, the two men clashed at first, but their mutual professionalism won out, and they developed a wary but workable relationship. Admiral Parker had a broad mandate. He was to end the League of Armed Neutrality by whatever means he saw fit. This much was obvious. The British would have to act fast. In early 1801, the fleets of Denmark, Sweden, and Russia were separated, waiting out the icy Baltic winter in their home ports. If Parker and Nelson waited too long, the ice would melt, the three enemy fleets would combine, and the British would be massively outnumbered. As was always his instinct, Nelson advocated the most audacious, aggressive course of action, bypassing the Danish fleet, slipping through the straits, and sailing all the way up the Baltic to attack the Russians in their winter berths. There was an obvious logic to this plan. Russia was the main driving force behind the alliance, so cut off the head of the snake and the body dies. But there was a lot that could go wrong with such a plan, and Admiral Parker was not willing to take the risk. Instead, the British would attack a much closer target, the Danish fleet anchored at Copenhagen. However, there were risks to attacking Copenhagen as well. The Danes were well-prepared for a fight, and the harbor was protected by an impressive network of fortresses. Fortified shore batteries were a terrible danger for Napoleonic-era navies. By their very nature, they had bigger guns than any warship, and their crews could fire more accurately, not having to worry about the rolling and pitching of the sea. And of course, stone and earth stand up to artillery fire much better than wood. If you put the best crew in the world on the biggest, most advanced ship of the line, they would still inevitably lose a duel with a coastal fortress. On top of the impressive permanent fortifications around Copenhagen, the Danes had also anchored a string of old, obsolete warships around the entrance to the harbor as stationary floating batteries, providing a shield for the modern core of their navy. The very geography of the harbour was a serious obstacle as well. The approach to Copenhagen was notoriously difficult, strewn with sandbanks and areas of shallow water where ships could run aground. Any British vessel that got itself stuck in these unfamiliar shallows would be a sitting duck for the Danes. Despite these risks, on the morning of april second, eighteen oh one, the British sailed into Copenhagen Harbour, ready for action. Rear Admiral Nelson would command the strike force, with Admiral Parker hanging back with the reserve a few miles behind. On paper, this engagement was pretty similar to Nelson's great triumph at the Nile, an attack against a stationary line of ships guarding the entrance to an unfamiliar harbor, aiming for the destruction of the enemy fleet. But this time, Nelson's opponents were much better prepared, and the British wouldn't be nearly as lucky. The fighting was fierce for hours, with no side gaining a clear advantage. Due to a shortage of naval manpower, some of the Danish ships were crewed partially by volunteers, including men with no maritime or military experience whatsoever. Still, they resisted bravely and fought the best sailors in the world to a standstill. Nelson had been at sea for twenty nine years and fought in dozens of engagements against the French, Americans, Spanish, and others but he called Copenhagen the hardest-fought battle of his career to date. By the early afternoon, the battle was a stalemate. Neither side had lost any ships, but several were severely damaged, and hundreds of sailors had been killed or wounded. A handful of British ships had run aground, and several more were totally disabled and drifting dangerously close to the lethal Danish shore batteries. The battle was still far from lost, but it was clear that things were not going well for the British. Shortly after one in the afternoon, Admiral Parker sent a signal, ordering Nelson to withdraw. Given the Royal Navy procedure of the time, it's probably more accurate to say Parker gave Nelson permission to withdraw if he found it necessary. Officers were given relatively wide leeway to interpret their orders as they saw fit. However, an officer who retreated in the face of the enemy, without specific orders to do so, would face a great deal of negative scrutiny, perhaps even a court-martial. So Parker sent the signal knowing that if Nelson felt the battle could be won, he would ignore it, but that if he believed the battle was lost, he could now retreat without any fear of official condemnation. As you can probably guess, Nelson decided to continue the fight. According to one source, when one of his subordinates pointed out the signal, Nelson held up his spyglass to his blind eye, remarking, You know I only have one eye. I have the right to be blind sometimes. I really do not see the signal. And so the British fought on, and made some progress piercing the enemy defenses, but the Danes continued to resist bitterly. Nelson still had not lost a ship, but several British vessels were disabled and unlikely to stay afloat much longer without a respite for emergency repairs. Despite his tenacity, the battle was slipping through Nelson's fingers. The defenses were too strong, the waters around the harbor were too treacherous, and the Danes were too steadfast. But it was not in Nelson's nature to give up. In desperation, he decided on a new tactic. Bluffing. On the deck of his flagship, Nelson sat down and dashed off a letter to the Danish crown prince, who was known to speak English fluently and widely suspected of pro-British sympathies. The letter survives today, and you can see from the rushed, sloppy handwriting that it was written under extreme duress. Quote, to the brothers of Englishmen, the Danes. Lord Nelson has directions to spare Denmark when she is no longer resisting. But if firing is continued on the part of Denmark, Lord Nelson will be obliged to set on fire the floating batteries he has taken, without having the power of saving the brave Danes who have defended them. End quote. Nelson would later claim his only intent in sending this letter was humanitarian, to forestall a pointless loss of life. But despite the flattering tone, it reads like an obvious threat. The crews of those floating batteries, many of whom were civilian volunteers, were being held hostage. Perhaps it wasn't the most honorable tactic, but Nelson's letter worked. The Danes agreed to a 24-hour ceasefire and to begin negotiations for a permanent treaty with Britain. And so, the Battle of Copenhagen ended with a negotiated settlement, a draw. Arguably, the British were headed for defeat until Nelson's threat saved the day. Not only did the Danes agree to suspend their involvement with the League, they agreed to allow British ships to pass into the Baltic for further operations against Sweden and Russia, if necessary. Despite their failure to destroy the Danish fleet, the expedition to the Baltic was a strategic success for Britain. Combined with the assassination of Emperor Paul, the show of force at Copenhagen was enough to dissolve the League of Armed Neutrality. It was a foreign policy victory for the British, and a defeat for the French, even though they'd had no direct involvement in the League. If this crisis had unfolded differently, the British could easily have lost their iron grip over the seas which almost certainly would have turned the war decisively in France's favor. Britain had dodged a bullet. Still, the Battle of Copenhagen was not Britain's finest hour. Legally speaking, they had launched a surprise attack on a neutral nation, without a formal declaration of war. The reality of the situation was a bit more complicated. The actions of the League could certainly be interpreted as acts of war, and the British issued a formal ultimatum demanding they stop, which the Danes had refused, a situation both sides knew would likely result in imminent armed confrontation. So the Battle of Copenhagen wasn't exactly a Napoleonic Pearl Harbor, but it was widely seen as an act of naked aggression to bend a weaker country to the will of a stronger one, the same type of operation the British were so fond of condemning when the French carried them out. From this perspective, Nelson's threat to burn the disabled battery ships along with their crews was just the final morally dubious capstone on an ugly and dishonorable campaign. If they were here to defend themselves, Pitt, Nelson, and Parker would probably respond that given the wider strategic situation, they had little choice but to take drastic measures. They saw Britain as the defender of national sovereignty and international law even while they also believed that it was sometimes necessary to violate those principles in service of the greater struggle. These are the difficult and unpleasant moral calculations leaders are forced to make during wartime. Despite the success of the Baltic expedition, the mood in Britain was far from triumphant. Average people were increasingly exhausted with the war. Merchants and bankers were frustrated with the expense of the conflict, their inability to access lucrative European markets, and by losses to French commerce raiders and corsairs. At the beginning of the war, the opposition Whig party was largely silenced. As the nation pulled together for the war effort, dissent was often viewed as unpatriotic, and indeed, many more radical Whigs had expressed their admiration for the early stages of the French Revolution but by 1801, anti-war voices were growing louder, and the opposition was growing bolder by the day. Pitt was the loudest and most visible proponent of the war, and so the conflict increasingly came to be seen as a partisan affair, an enterprise of Pitt and the Tories, rather than a truly national effort. Prime Minister Pitt was in trouble, and it wasn't just the rising anti-war sentiment. Pitt was also under fire for his domestic policies. Poor harvests led to food scarcity, which contributed to crime and social unrest, and compounded the economic disruptions caused by the war. There was also a red hot debate raging over the question of Ireland and civil rights for Catholics. I won't get into too much detail because it's a bit outside our scope, but suffice it to say, Pitt's response to the United Irishmen Rebellion of 1798. Had proved massively divisive. With the pressure mounting, Pitt resigned the premiership on March 14, 1801. He was replaced by Henry Addington, a fellow Tory and actually a personal friend and political ally. Addington was reluctant to take the post, preferring to see his friend Pitt stay in office, but King George insisted. The key difference between the two men was their position on the war. Addington was certainly not pro French, but unlike Pitt, he believed the time had come to seek some kind of accommodation with the Republic. By choosing Addington, the King was signaling his support for peace negotiations. Shortly after taking office, Addington reached out to French representatives in London, and informal preliminary talks began. By late 1801, even William Pitt, still a member of Parliament, had begun to soften his rhetoric on the war. Quote, We never at any one period said that, as a sine qua non, we insisted upon the restoration of the old government of France. In no one instance did we ever insist upon restoring the monarchy. End quote. That was a bald-faced lie. We know Pitt's foreign minister laid out that exact policy in no uncertain terms, only a year previously. But Pitt could see which way the wind was blowing, and didn't want to appear inconsistent. From the same speech, quote, In considering what terms that ought to be accepted, it would be necessary to inquire, in the first instance, what would be the expense of continuing the contest, what were the difficulties with which it would be attended, and what hopes could be entertained of its ultimate success. End quote. This is quite a change from less than a year earlier, when Pitt had told the same body that they could not allow the monster to remain on the throne of power, and promised to make war against France as long as it continued on its current course. Even for the arch-crusader against the revolution, the question of peace now came down to what terms Britain might hope to secure in the negotiations rather than the final resolution of the ideological struggle between the Republicans and the old regime. Peace with Britain had been at the top of Napoleon's agenda from the moment he took power, and the vagaries of British internal politics now presented him with a golden opportunity to achieve that goal. In 1800, Napoleon had told his generals that they had conquered peace. That was more or less true with respect to Austria but in the case of Britain, it would be more accurate to say that France ran out the clock and forced them to a draw. Napoleon would not be entering talks with the British from his usual position of complete dominance. He would not be able to engage in his typical negotiating style of dictating terms and strong-arming his counterparts into submission. But for now, that suited Napoleon's purposes just fine. Delivering on his promise to end France's wars was far more important than any concessions he might squeeze out of the British. Despite his personal mistrust and antipathy towards England, Bonaparte's overtures to King George really were sincere. Just like the new Prime Minister, Addington, he was able to put aside his personal opinions about the enemy and see that his country's interests were far better served by peace than by the continuation of a ruinous war with no end in sight. For the first time in nine years, there was a real chance for peace in Europe. We'll leave things there for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis, and Clark, and so many other famous and not so famous adventures from throughout history. Go to ExplorersPodcast.com